from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Let me start this message today with this question. Why do bad things happen to good people or to mostly good people? There's like the evangelical answer that's like, well, no one's actually good. But I mean it in the common sense. Like, why do bad things happen uh, to good people? Uh, Today... We're going to get into the story of Joseph, which is 13 chapters long, give or take. It starts in about Genesis 37 and goes to the end until Genesis 50. So it's way too long to be able to cover adequately in either one or two or three sermons. So sadly, we're going to have to break it up at at some points along the way that will almost feel like like it's leaving us hanging. So uh, just to catch us up a little bit, because again, for Joseph, you kind of got to be here for the long haul. It's if you were to write like a Hollywood script about almost anyone in the Bible, maybe David would possibly come in first in terms of having this full character story arc and a lot of material. I think Joseph, as far as the Old Testament goes, would be second. He has, there's just so much material there. Uh, so just to catch up a little bit from last week is that uh, Jacob wrestled with God, you know, and, and you can you can listen to that message if you'd like to, to catch up. There's a lot of mystery there. It's kind of an eerie text. But Jacob wrestled with God, got this blessing, had his name changed to Israel, even though he'd spent his whole life as sort of a cheat and a deceit, uh, deceitful guy. Uh, Esau, his brother, didn't kill him, and then they reconciled. And so now we're skipping ahead a few stories. Jacob has now become Israel, and uh, he has 12 sons. And if you ever hear of the 12 tribes of Israel, we often think of Israel as like a country, a nation. Uh, but all the, the 12 tribes, I've got a bee flying around me here. Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are all just the sons of Jacob. So like, you know, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Um, you know, the lion of Judah we hear about. That's just one of the sons of Jacob. Paul talks about how he's a Benjaminite. He's a son of Benjamin, one of the sons of Jacob. So all the tribes of Israel are really just the sons of Jacob and all their descendants. Uh, so let me uh, start this with, so Jacob has 12 sons. We're going to be talking about Joseph today. So it says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. So Jacob's favorite sons were Joseph and Benjamin. Now there's a whole backstory to this, but basically in that day, the patriarchs had multiple wives Jacob, the deceiver himself, was sort of deceived into uh, marrying a woman named Leah when, when who he wanted to marry was Rachel. And so his favorite sons are the two sons of the wife that he sort of wanted to marry in the first place, if that makes sense. Uh, and they're also his, his youngest. So his favorite sons are Joseph and then Benjamin, the very youngest. Uh, Joseph was respected the most. He was sort of the, the favorite son for a number of reasons. Um, and it's why he has this coat or this robe. Now, all of us today who have been kind of brought up on the Broadway story are imagining like all these other people walking around in like peasant rags and various shades of muddy wet. And then like Joseph comes in with this like rainbow coat, you know, uh, which is not how it would have been. We actually don't know if his robe was multicolored or what. Uh, Earlier translators didn't know what to do with it. So they just called it a multicolored robe. We have no idea what the robe looked like. It might have been ornate. It might have been a better kind of wool or a better kind of material. It might have had long sleeves instead of short or no sleeves. It was just understood, though. Anyone who saw it, even from a distance, knew this person is really important. It's sort of a, you know, the heir, the manager, the well-respected son, whatever it was. And all the other brothers, of course, didn't get this robe. 
Uh, one of the reasons he's so respected by his father is that he's super responsible and much more mature than he is aged. It says he's 17 in this first story. But he, even though he's the second youngest of 12, is given the job of checking on his father's business, kind of like a manager. Uh, now, the story also kind of makes it clear that Joseph is a bit of a daddy's boy. I don't know if he's like that first or if it's because he's shown this favor that he becomes like this. But his brothers were really annoyed with him, and you'll see why in a second. The, uh, the very first thing the Bible says about his character is that he was out uh, pastoring the flock with some of his brothers and that, quote, Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to their father, Jacob. So uh, I'm a writer, some of you know this, and there are certain plot tricks that you use in the beginning of a story to cue the reader or the viewer in as to what your characters are like. And so there's this, uh, this classic example in Hollywood is like if you, you know, in a two hour movie, you might only get three character developing scenes with any character. And so if you want people to know right away who the bad guy is, you have what's called a kick the dog scene. And like this is, it's not always a dog, but it's such a stereotypical intro where like you see these characters and they're all charming and nice. And all of a sudden all the characters look away, but the camera's still on one. And the guy like leans under the table and like kicks the dog that's annoying him. And then you're like, okay, that's the evil guy, right? It's like sort of a shorthand to know who the bad guy is. You see it in rom-coms too, as to like, who's gonna be like the friendly sidekick who clearly will be the love interest in the end. You know, you get these sort of cue-ins. And uh, the very first thing that Genesis says about Jacob is that uh, he's basically tattling on his older brothers for not doing a very good job in the fields or for goofing off or not being responsible. And so that's like this sort of cue, like he's, he's a good son, he's all about his father's business, but he's, anno he's an annoyance to his brother because he, He's acting like he's like the dad the whole time and then telling on his brothers, even though he's the, the second youngest. So uh, it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of them, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And instead of, in trying, to, in, instead of trying to endear himself more to his brothers, he digs in even harder. He has a dream and he decides to share it with his brother. So I'm going to read this and just enjoy, enjoy. Imagine being an older brother and hearing this from your younger he says, uh, listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers re responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. So here this, here's this little guy who's sort of been given way too much respect in their eyes and he's like by the way i had a dream that one day you'll all bow down to me huh and they're just like come on uh all right so then the next dream says soon joseph had another dream and again he told his brothers about it listen i have had another dream he said the sun moon and 11 stars bowed down low before me is that a fly or a bee can you guys tell there's something flying around me and i'm like don't get stung in the eye while you're preaching um <laughs> so he says the sun the moon and 11 stars bowed low before me. So the sun and the moon represent father and mother. I think the sun is the father and the moon is the mother, though I'm not sure. And then the 11 stars are his 11 brothers. This time he told the dream to his father. This is Jacob, now become Israel, as well to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of a dream is that? He asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. So this is a non-Western society. Dreams are sort of seen as a, a portent, as a sort of a, a window into truth or the future or something. And so Jacob did wonder what was about what, what, what was going on in these dreams. What's eerie about these dreams is that he, here this 
his grain will stay up strong and everyone else will bow low to him, is that not only would he eventually be correct, and we'll get to this in the weeks to come, but that their very bowing down, their very um, service of Joseph would have to do with the issue of food or grain itself. And we'll get to that story in, in the, the next few weeks. But none of the brothers know this now. All they know is that they hate Joseph. That's what they do know. So Jacob sends Joseph to go look in on his brothers and give a report. So right, all the brothers are doing hard work and the elements, you know, shepherds don't have a good rap in terms of like how easy their job is. So they're all living under the elements, getting rained on. It's cold, it's sunny, right? And somehow uh, Joseph is back at home, like being important with his dad. And then the dad's like, all right, go check on your brothers and make sure they're doing their job. Uh, again, all sorts of favoritism. He's, he's the most trusted. And now he's sent as a sort of loss prevention to check in on his brothers. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever worked at a grocery store or similar kind of retail situation, but uh, I, I grew up in a little rural town and I remember I, I was a like a stock boy or whatever, and then also a cashier at our um, at our local grocery store. And I remember like corporate from somewhere in the Twin Cities sent out a loss prevention person. I don't know if they were shoplifting or what, but for whatever reason, this loss prevention person came in and stood upstairs behind like a one-way or two-way mirror, whatever it's called, and just spied on us. And you like the level of animosity and like distrust for this person was incredible. Like all of the grocery store employees, it was like this anathema, like the fact that someone's coming in for the very purpose of doubting your, you know, ethical life or whatever. And so everyone was very uh, wary of this. This is a woman that came in to do this. Uh, and I remember, remember, this is a town of 6,000 people. And I remember once a friend from high school came in. He was just about to go to Glacier National Park. This was just in the era when uh, digital cameras were kind of becoming a thing, but no one used them yet. And so he came in to buy... Um, like a disposable camera. You know, it used to be at every like grocery store checkout line, you could get those. So he bought a disposable camera. It was all good and ethical. I charged him for it and there was no one in line. So I chatted with him for probably about 45 seconds, wished him luck on his trip. And I got written up by this loss prevention person because I had served a friend whom I knew by name. And I was like, lady, this is a town of 6,000 people. I know a third of those people that come in that door. I know them all by name and like, you cannot possibly hold that as a standard. Like this is not the Twin Cities, right? This is a small rural town. Anyway, that is my remembrance. My memory of loss prevention is just like, ugh, like you just feel like they're just waiting for you to screw up. So anyway, this is kind of to humanize Joseph's brothers just a bit. Not that what they do is ever acceptable, but to humanize them, you can understand how a seed of bitterness would, would grow there. Uh, so yeah, no one likes someone staring over your shoulder ready to give report. And to have that be your little brother, uh, is just insupportable by them. So he meets his brothers, Jacob, or rather Joseph is coming to meet his brothers out pasturing and give this report. And Joseph's brothers see him coming and they begin to plot. Like enough is enough, they can't handle it anymore. The Bible says that when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance, probably because of his robe. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Uh, a cistern, if you, don't, if you don't live right by a river or something, a cistern is, is, a, is an underground like porcelain thing that you use to store like rainwater so that when the dry season comes, you don't die. Uh, so they said, let's throw him into this empty cistern here. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. I, I'm sorry, I, sk I skipped ahead here. They say, here comes the dreamer. Uh, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Uh, in that era, they still had uh, lions. 
they had bears, they had a, a, some kind of species of wolves. It's pretty rare, but people did actually get eaten by animals sometimes, so it wouldn't be the craziest excuse that a 17-year-old got taken down by wild animals. Then it says, but when Reuben, and that's the oldest brother, heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. But this is all kind of a ruse. It says Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So he's like, hey, don't bother killing him. Just leave him here to die on his own in this, you know, unguarded cistern. But then he was going to come back for him, fish him out, and then, you know, it would all be okay. Uh, it says, so when Joseph arrived, the, the Bible doesn't tell us. Somehow Reuben, who wants to help him and save him, seems to be off on other business. So he makes the suggestion, and then he kind of is gone from the scene because the brothers kind of still have their way with Joseph. It says, so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing, the symbol of him being first and all the jealousy wrapped up in that. They grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. So it seems like they took the advice from Reuben, the fake advice that they should just throw him in and let him rot. Uh, but then somehow Reuben's gone. And anyway, he's going to come back and save him later. So they grab him, throw him into the cistern. It says then, when they were about to leave, they saw a trading caravan of camels in the distance. And it says that these were Ishmaelite traders. And I used to think of this story and just think so many generations had passed and these were just random traders. But if these traders are from Ishmael, then these guys are close relatives. So this is their grandpa's uh, brother is Ishmael. Um, and if they're Ishmaelite traders, then that would be the, the sons and grandsons of Ishmael. So we're talking like first cousins once removed and second cousins. Like these people knew each other, uh, but they see this, this trading caravan uh, and they realize that, um, you know, let's see here. Why bother killing him and then having to hide their tracks? Instead, they could just sell him to those traders as a slave instead. Um, so they sell him to these Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver, which is uh, two years' wages. And so, you know, depending on if you count an individual or family income, we're thinking seventy dollars to $100,000 is what they sell their brother for. And they sell him to their own relatives, who they presumably knew. So Reuben means to save him. And so somehow Reuben comes back into this story. Reuben means to save him and come back for him. He's the eldest. He's the firstborn. And even though Joseph is the favorite, he still feels this responsible, you know, responsibility to keep Joseph alive and to sort of honor Jacob. Um, so it says he, he comes back for him. Uh, but the others, let's see, the other brothers sell him while Reuben's not there. He comes back to get Joseph out of the cistern and discovers that he's gone. And then he tears his robes. It's like the strongest show of emotion in ancient Hebrew culture. He tears his robes in grief and says, the boy is gone. What will I do now? So then they hatch this plan. So here they have to go trick their dad, Jacob, into believing whatever story they're going to tell. And it's kind of a, an irony here that Jacob has spent his life deceiving others, and now he is deceived by his own sons. They make up this lie. And they, they kill a goat, and they dip Joseph's special coat in this goat's blood. So they send the beautiful robe to their father with the message, look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son, Joseph? And their father, Jacob, recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him because it's all ripped up and covered in goat blood now. Um, they didn't have DNA testing. You know, they didn't know that it was a goat's blood. Um, so Joseph has clearly uh, been torn to pieces, he said. Then Jacob tore his clothes. A lot of uh, clothing motifs in this story. He tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. 
So the Hebrews, you know, in, in our culture, they act like if you're grieving, something is wrong with you. Whereas in Hebrew culture, it was the opposite. When, when people went through a really painful time, they, they grieved on purpose, and they actually didn't want to be distracted from mourning or grieving. So they would dress themselves in burlap, which is extremely itchy and uncomfortable, and that was a way to keep them in mourning, because every time they'd be reminded of how uncomfortable they were, which is essentially all day, they would be reminded to mourn and grieve whoever they lost appropriately. And so this happens in the Old and New Testaments. They put on sackcloth and ashes or burlap, uh, and then they can mourn more effectively for a longer amount of time. Um, let's see here. So he, he closed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son. Uh, the family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite or Ishmaelite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So as far as the Bible story narrative goes, we'll end at that spot today. And so as far as we know as the listener, this is where this able favorite son of Jacob, you know, the one who has the promises, Jacob has, you know, this patriarch who's going to bring blessing to the whole world, and his favorite son ends this story as a slave. And for all Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. And you can get to this spot. Imagine if like the reader were to just stop here, like I am, and you think, what in the world is God doing? It's my temptation to go on and tell the rest of the story, but that's not how life is. It's easy to get to the resolution too fast. Um, you know, we know that this story will, some of us maybe know that how this story ends and that it will get better, but it doesn't get better for well over a decade. And so it can be our tendency to like, we, we hit the, the, the dark part of the plot and we want to run right into resolution. But our actual lives don't work like that. We often spend a long time in the valley. So here the most trusted son of Jacob is given these most important tasks. He's seen as this you know, most responsible son, which will come back in handy later. Um, but you know, he doesn't know that he has a future beyond slavery. Instead, right as he's coming into the primacy of his life, he's cut down and sold to the Egyptians. Through circumstances he couldn't control, his life was thrown completely out of whack. And I imagine that's something we can all relate to, right? Through circumstances you can't control, your life is just thrown totally out of whack. Has that ever happened to you? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, <laughs> people are laughing, yeah. Uh, it's not even worth raising your hand for that, right? Of course. Um, and to some of you, it might be happening right now. Uh, you're going about your business, doing good work, and then just bam, you're brought to the very bottom of what you think so far is your life's narrative. Uh, cancer, health complications, job loss, identity loss, uh, a global pandemic, how about that? Uh, depression, mental health. I mean, these are all huge things that can level us and put us at the bottom of our life's narrative. And when this happens to us, when we are struck down in the midst of you know, our prime and life gets really hard, it's very easy to question God. You know, we say, why? You know, why does this happen? And often no answer comes. Sometimes not for more than 10 years or sometimes not at all in this life. But if Joseph had a wider view of what was to come, if he, if he knew what might happen in 10 or 15 years, and we'll get into that as the weeks go on, he might have understood why this was happening to him. If he knew what would become of his own people in 10 or 100 or even 1,000 years, he might understand. If he knew what would happen 1,700 years later to an innocent man who was also sold into bondage for pieces of silver, 
Jesus. And he might know why he's going through what he went through. Because what happened, this Joseph character ended up being the rescue and the salvation for the Jewish people. Just as Jesus ended up being the rescue and salvation for the whole world. Um, and none of, that, none of that story would have been able to pan out as it had without Joseph and what he's about to do in the chapters that come. And God does the same in our lives. Sometimes you're doing everything right, and then you totally get sold out or ruined or fired or canceled or whatever it might be. Uh, and for a few handfuls of silver, maybe for a job promotion for someone else or looking good or more social media followers or whatever it might be, you become taken advantage of, and all of a sudden you're at the bottom of the cistern. So why do bad things happen to essentially good people? We can't know. And many times in this life, we actually do get an answer if we live long enough. But many times we don't. If we had a God's eye view, we would understand. If we could see decades and centuries in advance, even millennia into the future, we would understand. But we can't. God is always working all things together for the good of his plan and for his will. But that might not mean a perceived good result for you, right? So there's a different, there's a different current in many churches today where they're like, hey, you know, you're, you're a prince, you're a princess because you're the son or daughter of a king and like nothing bad will ever happen to you. And that is not at all the example of the Bible. Sometimes we know why bad things have happened. Sometimes we see the light even within our own lives. And sometimes we don't. But it all fits into God's big plan, which is good, even if we don't understand it. So what do we do when we find ourselves in trial at the bottom of our own story? We can lay down our questions, maybe not the questions of why are we suffering, but we can at least lay down our weapons, lay down our arms when we keep asking God if he's good. We can lay down our arms and know that if we could actually see things from this God-sized view, this, this God's eye narrative, that it would make sense. And we can be like Joseph. Uh, as we'll see in, in the coming weeks, he was faithful to God and worked hard even at his lowest. Life has its mountaintops, and we always desire those, but you cannot farm on the mountaintops, right? You need to go into the valleys and work there, even though it can be more difficult. So ask God why, but remember that he is good. Remember that he has this huge millennia-spanning plan and that we cannot possibly understand and remember all that he is working together, whether we're an individual that turns out in the place of a king or turns out in the place of Joseph at this point in the narrative. Be faithful even in trials when you're feeling sold out. And remember that Jesus too was sold out for 30 pieces of silver, just like Joseph was sold for 20. Jesus has been there before us. He became human to be our high priest and to suffer as we suffer. He hurt, he felt betrayed, he felt emotional pain and physical pain, and he died as every one of us here will die. Jesus too prayed for deliverance from it, but he had to endure and he had to walk through that dark valley. But by doing that, the dawn came. The sunrise came on that fateful resurrection Sunday when he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave for the whole world. So by Joseph's kidnapping and sale into slavery, he ended up bringing redemption and salvation to the Jewish people. And we'll hear that as more on an earthly scale. He kept them from starving to death. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. But by Jesus' suffering, by his faithfulness in running that race and pursuing his path to the cross, he brought redemption to the whole world, the conquering of sin and, and death that separates us from God. So be faithful and press on in trials. God is always working, even in the lowest points of our life, even though we don't understand it. And if we're lucky, we get to understand the resolution in 5, 10, 20 years. 
but know that there is a resolution even if it's a thousand years from now. God's mysterious plan is working. And know that God is good, especially in the lowest points when they come and if they come. God is good, and your suffering and pain is not without a purpose and plan uh, in, his, in his story. And know it's comforting to know that he, he came here as a human and went through it as well. So he can, he can relate to us in our pain and our suffering. Uh, that's the end. That's a, sh- a shorter sermon for today, but I had to find a spot to, to cut this narrative off. So let me pray to close us. And then um, we have a lot of donuts and coffee left just because the cups aren't out and the donut box isn't open. The bees are kind of swarming. So feel free to go for it. Um, just, you know, what's that? Did you get... Wasps. Okay. Well, just, you know, you can ask someone who's not afraid of them to open the box for you. Um, all right. Let me pray to close us. Lord, we thank you for going before us, for living and experiencing betrayal and pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And we know that whether we're in it now or whether we experience it in the future, there will be lows and even some of the lowest lows of our life that are still to come. We pray that as we're questioning why, that we wouldn't question your goodness, that we would know that this is part of your plan. And we pray for peace and just the knowledge of whether in 10 or 15 or 100 or 1,000 years that what we're going through makes sense in your plan, even if we don't understand it. So give us courage. Help us know that Jesus, our high priest, has walked before us through those difficulties. And uh, encourage us. Bless us. Uh, Let this story of Joseph teach us and draw us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.